Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is George Robbins, and this is episode 70 for the second quarter of April 2013. The topic I'm going to talk about today is the Ringmakers of Saturn. Now, this claim is put forward by Norman R. Berggren in his book, By the Same Name, and this claim is that Saturn's rings are basically made by ginormous space vehicles as their exhaust. I'll pause there and let that sink in. Now I'm going to quote from the preface of his book so that you can hear it in his own words. Quote, Presented herein are pictures of immensely large, enormously powerful extraterrestrial space vehicles located in the vicinity of Saturn and its moons. End quote. With most topics I talk about on this show, there's usually at least some sort of shred of potential sanity. This is not one of those topics. I even posted about this on the Facebook page for the podcast, asking people whether it was even worth talking about due to the severe departure from reality of this topic. But I'm going to go through it a little bit, just like I did with Jose Escamilla's film Celestial and then talk somewhat about what's worth talking about. All right, so let's just get into this. Now, when one hears a claim like this, if one doesn't dismiss it right away, then the very first thing that one should ask is for evidence. After all, without evidence, then their claim is meaningless. It's the same as me saying right now that the sun is powered by a magical flatulating dragon. Now prove me wrong. Bergeron does at least oblige us in that respect. The evidence is that he looked at photographs returned of Saturn by the Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 spacecraft from the very early 1980s. He saw differences in the photographs from one mission to the next, and since they were only nine months apart, he realized that something must be changing them. Bergeron then did something that I've addressed before in this podcast when discussing why you need to be cautious about image analysis. His technique was to take photographs that were released by NASA, so ones in the public domain, like printed in a magazine. He then put those pictures underneath of a microscope, put a flood lamp behind the pictures, and then he took photos of the microscopic images and he analyzed those. When he did this, he found that part of Saturn's A-ring disappeared. Going further, he used the Cassini division as a unit of length, and he discovered that the A-ring was, quote, too short radially, unquote, by a factor of two. When doing that analysis, he saw a cylindrical object below the A-ring, and it appeared to be spewing out emissions. And so those emissions were making the rings. That's the, quote-unquote, logical conclusion that he made from these observations. Now, I've thrown a lot at you over the last two minutes or so, and I can imagine that some of you are shaking your heads quite vigorously at the moment. Others of you are probably wondering what this A-ring thing is and what the Cassini division is. So let's take a step back. The study of Saturn's rings has an over 400-year-long history, and we now know that they're very thin, but they're very wide disks of orbiting material orbiting Saturn. What you see in a telescope in your backyard is mostly the A-ring and the B-ring. The B-ring is closer to Saturn, and it's separated from the A-ring by a gap. Since Cassini was the first person to be able to see this gap, it's named after him. 
Over the years, other rings have been found. Well, they're not actually separate rings. They're more, they look like they're separate rings, these vast areas, but they're not actually solid rings themselves. But we call them rings because from a distance they look like rings. Anyway, over the years, other rings have been found, such as the C-ring and the D-ring, that are interior to the B-ring. Also, we found the E, F, and G-ring, and also, very recently, the Phoebe ring, and those are all outside of the A-ring. But really, when you look at the rings in a backyard telescope, what you're seeing is the B-ring, which is largest, the Cassini gap, if you can see the Cassini division at all, and then the A-ring. The rings are generally, as a whole, dynamically stable on 100-year time spans, meaning that they don't really change from one moment to the next as a whole. But close up, they do have a lot of structure, and that structure does change significantly on the tens to hundreds of meters scale over the course of just one orbit around Saturn. Doing simulations of Saturn's rings was my first real main project as a graduate student, before I started to work on Mars craters. And I'll be doing it again. In fact, I'm running some simulations now as I record this for some work over the next year or so. So this is something that I actually know a fair bit about from personal research. The results from the Voyager mission suggest a model where material in the B-ring is kind of like granola bars, or at least it can be thought of like granola bars. There are long clumps of particles separated by gaps, and this is on the, again, tens of meters scale. So these gaps and these streamers of particles are much too small to actually be seen with the cameras at the time. And they're still too small to be seen even with Cassini that's currently in orbit around Saturn, at least until probably about 2017. Not that these structures are going to be visible to the cameras in 2017, but that Cassini is probably going to do a death plunge into Saturn in 2017. Anyway, so the idea is that we have these clusters of material, these streamers of material, with gaps in between them, and they're too small to be seen with cameras, but what we can do is we can detect them by watching very carefully a star as it passes behind the rings. If we observe the star, then we can measure its brightness changes. And that brightness change, along with its trajectory across the rings, can tell us a lot about the structure of the rings themselves. Cassini and my simulations, which actually happens to be my most cited paper at the moment, showed that the granola bar model that was put together after Voyager is a little bit wrong that it's a more complicated situation, which I think most people expected. In the B-ring, the structure looks more like a netting, with very long, thick clumps and thinner tendrils of material that link these thick clumps together, and then there are little bitty other particles scattered throughout. As you go out from Saturn, such as into the A-ring, since you're farther away from the planet, particles can clump together more easily because Saturn isn't able to tear them apart as much. So you have, instead of a netting, like in the B-ring, more of a free-form webbing with larger groups of particles that can come together in clusters a few tens of meters across. These clusters then get disrupted and then reform on periods of about one orbit around the planet. Add on to that Saturn's moons. The moons act to perturb the rings, and they're responsible for making the many divisions that are in them, such as the Cassini division, or the Enki gap. They're also responsible for perturbing the rings, making the edges a little bit more dynamic and wavy than many people think, kind of like an old vinyl record that's been warped and burned a little bit and isn't as flat as it used to be. 
Those of you who are under 25, ask your parents what a vinyl record is. I promise you that it won't make them feel old. Alright, so stepping back for a little bit of a mid-episode summary. We have Saturn's rings which are, on a large scale, dynamically stable on scales of tens of kilometers, and they look the same today as they would have 400 years ago if we had spacecraft in orbit. Now, that's not to say they're going to look the same in a million years, but in the timescales of several months, they're going to look identical. The system is governed by basic dynamics, and it's quote-unquote kept in line by lots of moons. We call these shepherd moons. On a scale of a kilometer or less, the system changes constantly, and it isn't solid, but it's made up of innumerable particles that we think average roughly one meter across. These particles form lots of structures based on the constant interplay between their own self-gravity, their motion around Saturn, and Saturn and the moons trying to pull those clusters and clumps apart. Back to the ringmakers of Saturn. So what Berggren is saying is that when he took pictures, he clipped out things like magazines and newspapers, he put them under a microscope, took pictures through the microscope, and analyzed those, and when he did this, he found anomalies. I just found myself sort of nodding my head unconsciously while saying that. Of course you're going to find anomalies. You're using copies of copies, you're using a microscope that may not have been cleaned in a few years, you're using a light that likely does not provide even illumination. I mean. I'm looking up the light in my apartment right now, and I see a lot of bugs in my light fixture. You're using a camera that has its own imperfections, and since this was done before digital cameras, you're using film that has its own issues and its own grain issues, and also you can deal with issues like the film emulsion bleeding over and making other artifacts when you do poor reproductions. I have a PDF of his book, and I'll be posting it on the website for this podcast. I strongly recommend downloading it and taking a look at some of the photos within it that show his evidence. You'll get a, a good feel for the kind of caliber of the evidence for this claim. For example, I'm looking right now at one on the bottom of his labeled page 17. Kids, follow along at home. He's showing the B-ring, the Cassini division, and the A-ring. Unfortunately, he does not tell us what Voyager photo this is, in fact, he doesn't tell us what photos any of the photos are, so we can't actually look for a better version of it, you know, the official NASA version or anything. We just sort of have to look at the picture in his book. So he's showing the B-ring, Cassini division, and A-ring, and to the left side of the photo, he has what he's labeled a luminous source that's within the Cassini division. Since we don't know what photo this is, and I'm not going to search through the hundreds or thousands of Voyager pictures to find it, all this is is an anomaly. I don't know if it was in the original, I don't know if it's in his copy only, but for the moment the most fair thing that we can say is that it's an anomaly. In the lower right of the photo, he shows what appears to me to be film grain and a very slightly little bit of a bleed in the film emulsion. The film grain is kinda like pixel noise if you want to think of it in a digital sense with modern cameras. It really looks like the equivalent of one or two brighter pixels with a lot of image noise in the process. It really actually just looks like many of the other brighter would-be pixels, but actually film grain around it, but these are the only ones that he's labeled as exhaust on one side and body on the other. Again, pointing to more unevenly illuminated film grains between them, he calls these streamers, 
And again, using the scale of the Cassini division, because this is you know, published information, we know how big the Cassini division is, he then says that these structures, these body and emission and streamers, are many tens of thousands of kilometers across. Finally, at the bottom of the image on the right side, he points out another object that he's labeled a, quote, light source. The problem is that it's clearly below the frame of the image since the rings are truncated above it. And to me, this quote-unquote light source looks exactly like a speck of dust that got trapped in there maybe in the light or on top of the magazine clipping or on top of the microscope or on the lens of his camera or anywhere else. It really just looks like a speck of dust that got in there somehow. It also looks similar to the numerous other tiny light sources throughout the image that also look like specks of dust. The rest of the book is really just like this. In one photo, what he calls plate 30 on page 55, he points to a cloud, actually many cloud features, on Saturn, and he claims that these are massive electromagnetic vehicles. This really gets to his larger point, that he claims that these are gigantic vehicles that may be nuclear or, quote, beyond nuclear propulsion, maybe even plasma propulsion. Since he claims that they have electromagnetic properties, he calls them EMVs, electromagnetic vehicles. And he says that it's possible that they're biological, and they look similar to some close-up pictures of HIV. As in the virus that leads to AIDS. Um, yeah, I, I could go on, such as he claims that the rings are a parking lot and Saturn is the garage, and that when he examines Apollo photographs in the same way, all of the people and vehicles he finds are replicas of the original made by the same aliens making the rings, and so on and so forth, but I think that I've milked about as much out of this that's worth milking. When you get right down to it, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of image analysis mixed in with some paranoia and other conspiracy ideas. He admits, quote, It's been hard for some people to wrap their mind around it, or accept it. But he still makes this claim. Really, it's not a theory. When you get down to it, uh, you see some pictures, and you finally come up with a conclusion as a matter of fact. Backing off of this, I really don't have a desire to make fun of people who might be mentally ill. I have a great respect for mental health, and especially the stigma that goes along with any admission of a, well, to use the legal term that I hear in Law & Order, a mental disease or defect. So I don't want anyone to think that I did this topic for that reason, to make fun of someone. Rather, when I started my blog and later this podcast, one reason was that I was interested in this stuff, and I like to argue with people who were crazy. As in, they were spouting crazy ideas, not crazy, crazy, crazy. And I thought that others might like to hear me do that argument, the one that I normally kept inside of my head. You know, it's good to sometimes get those voices out. Another reason is that there typically are some people who believe even the most outlandish-seeming idea. I mean, like, you know, that you can put a candle up to your ear, melt the candle, and pull out the earwax. Or that water is magic and has a memory that can cure you of various ailments. Or, according to a poll of 1,247 adults that was released on April 3rd of this year, up to 13% of Americans either think that, or aren't sure if, shape-shifting aliens, as in reptilian aliens, rule the world. To you or I, that might seem crazy. 
I mean, Richard Hoagland told about 10 million people on the night of December 21st, 2012, that the fact that nothing happened was proof that HARP stabilized the world, preventing it from tipping over by interfacing with pyramids and super special physics that only he understands and proved exists with his watch hooked up to a computer. But some people believe that. And even if you don't believe it, you may not know why you shouldn't believe it. You may just say that it doesn't pass the smell test and move on from there. That's the other reason that I do this. By using examples of people's crazy ideas and delving into them to figure out what's really going on, you learn something in the process. For example, this Friday I'll be reprising my Apollo moon hoax talk at the Colorado School of Mines. One claim I talk about is how the astronauts knew how to focus the camera without being able to see through the non-existent viewfinder. In exploring that claim, I talk about how camera apertures work and how they vary the amount of light that's let into the camera, but also that they affect how much depth the field is in focus. If I were to stand up and talk about the mechanics of how cameras and optical systems work without any context, that would be much more boring and someone likely won't remember it an hour later. But by linking it to how it was possible for astronauts to take in-focus photographs on the moon, I not only show why one hoax claim is wrong, but I also get to teach about optics that people are more likely to remember later on. It's sort of like a mnemonic. That's why I think this topic is worth at least briefly talking about. Yes, it's probably one of the most outlandish ideas I've addressed in the last 70 episodes. But in going through it, we talked about image analysis, artifacts, common sense, and how the ring system really, really works. You may disagree. You may agree. I'd be interested in hearing from you if you have strong feelings either way. There's no new news for this episode, but I do have a question for Q&A. This episode's question comes from Justin N. from Canada, who asks, Do the planets in any given system slowly move away from their sun, or do they move closer? I understand the moon slowly moves away from us. Will that continue forever, or will it find a point where its pull and the Earth's pull balance out and stay together? To address this question, you first have to know why planets orbit where they do, or at least why they do today. It has to do with their orbital energy. Our moon right now orbits a certain distance from Earth, and it has a certain energy that corresponds to that orbit. If there were no energy coming into its orbit and no energy leaving its orbit, it would stay that distance from Earth until something drastic changes. But the moon does have energy that is fed into its orbit, and that energy comes from Earth. As the moon orbits, Earth bulges a little bit because of the difference in gravitational pull from one side to the other. That's tides. That bulge is a little bit ahead of the moon's orbit. What that means is that the moon effectively gets pulled forward in its orbit by Earth's tidal bulge a teeny little bit at a time. This very slowly gives it more energy and raises it to a higher orbit above the planet. The energy lost from Earth is very, very, very slowly slowing down its spin rate, making our day longer. This process will continue until the tidal bulge lines up with the moon, at which point Earth will have slowed so that the same side always faces the moon, just as the same side of the moon always faces Earth. 
Various estimates that I've seen put this as happening eh, somewhere in around a billion years or two. The opposite case happens with Phobos around Mars. The tidal bulge is behind Phobos, meaning that it's actually slowing down and lowering its orbit, so eventually it's going to break up and crash into the planet. This same thing can happen with planets if you have a way of adding or removing energy from their orbits. A way to do this in the very, very early solar system, while things were still forming, is by gas drag, literally a friction as the planet plows through the nebula that it formed from. Think of a swimmer diving into a pool. It has a certain, you know, the swimmer has a certain velocity, a certain speed, dives into the pool, and the pool, the water in it, acts to slow the swimmer down. That's basically gas drag around planets, only with a swimmer and a pool of water. So what gas drag does is it will actually change the orbital location of that planet, moving it in closer to the parent star. Another way to affect an orbit is for the object that it's orbiting to gain or lose mass. This usually doesn't happen until the very end stage of a star's life. In fact, I can't really think of any significant mass gain or loss except at the end of a star's life. Models show that when the Sun, in around 5 billion years or so, goes through its red giant phase and grows really, really big and loses a bunch of mass, well, it may be as big as Earth's present-day orbit, but Earth probably won't be swallowed up by it because Earth should migrate outwards because the Sun has lost mass. This is why when people ask if Earth is going to be enveloped by the Sun when it goes red giant, the answer is that it's complicated and no one really knows the answer. So with that in mind, that wraps up this Q&A segment, and if you'd like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the feedback methods available. Although the easiest is probably just to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. In terms of feedback, I have two corrections to make to the last episode on the solar neutrino problem. The first is a very, very minor correction. This comes from Benny from Stockholm, Sweden. He says that the area of my hand is about 150 square centimeters, so that's 10 trillion neutrinos passing through it every second, not 10 quadrillion neutrinos passing through it every second. I sometimes get orders of magnitude mixed up. Another more significant correction, and I apologize for possibly mispronouncing the name, comes from Sierran, or Sierran, from Dublin, Ireland, C-I-A-R-A-N. Not quite sure how to pronounce that. Uh, anyway, this person pointed out that I had repeated a misconception that I had from several years ago, unfortunately, on how uh, energy works inside of the sun. The mass loss from a proton turning into a neutron is what gives you energy in a neutrino. That's what I had said. That's totally, totally wrong. It's actually going in the wrong direction entirely. Neutrons are actually more massive than protons. The way that you get energy out of the fusion of two protons into a deuterium nucleus is that the individual binding energy of two protons individually is more than the binding energy of a deuterium nucleus, a proton and a neutron, combined. So even though a proton plus a neutron are heavier than two individual protons, the energy of the two combined is less than the energy of two protons individually. 
that's how it works, and I encourage you to do internet searches and various other things to get that in more detail. Um, in terms of feedback general to the show, I've had a few people tell me that I need to post the podcast feed to a few other places. The Windows Phone Podcast Store was one, and uh, Podcatcher is another. Please let me know if there are other places that I should try to get this feed listed. Also, some people have said that they're having issues with the feed, or some episodes are not able to be downloaded or load onto their trendy mobile devices. If that's the case, first, if you're having issues with downloading the episode, as in like you downloaded it but it only plays partway through or it sounds broken, try re-downloading it. That's worked every time that I've recommended it. If you're having, if you've downloaded the episode but then you're having issues getting it onto a device, please send me a detailed diagnostic, as in don't just tell me it won't load onto your iPhone. Tell me, for example, what computer operating system you're using, what software you're trying to use to sync the two devices, what version of iPhone software you're using, what version of iPhone it is, and all that other stuff so that I can try to track down the issue. Just telling me that it's not syncing to your iPhone doesn't really help me. Um, so, with that in mind, we're going to move on to The Puzzler where I attempt each episode to attempt to ask a critical thinking question attemptedly loosely based on the material that I attempt to discuss in the main segment. The question last time was, I mentioned that it takes thousands of years for light produced in the sun to reach Earth. Why is that? Congratulations goes to Jan for being the first to send in the basics of the correct answer, and congratulations goes to Wesley for a complete answer, or at least the first complete answer. Honorable mention to Nigel and Warwick for also submitting correct answers just after Wesley did. Because Warwick uh, goes into the most detail, that's going to be up on the website. Meanwhile, Wesley's shorter version is that when a photon is emitted in the dense solar core, it gets deflected by the surrounding particles, and so it travels on an altered trajectory with each collision. It actually both collides and gets absorbed and then re-emitted. The density of each of the layers of the sun reduces as you get farther from the core, meaning that it takes less time for the photon to travel through the layers of lower density due to the lower rate of collisions. Yet this random walk process still takes thousands of years. In other words, basically you have a photon that's created inside the core of the sun, and the sun is so dense that it almost immediately gets reabsorbed by another molecule. It then gets re-emitted, and then reabsorbed, and re-emitted, and reabsorbed, and this process can go on for literally thousands, or tens of thousands, and some people have done the simulations and said actually hundreds of thousands of years before the photons can eventually work their way out of the sun. It takes a long time, and that's just because the sun is really, really dense. This episode, with the main segment on Saturn's rings, the puzzler deals with, yep, you guessed it, Saturn's rings. I did numerous simulations of Saturn's rings as the as I said the first project that I did in graduate school. Something that I found absolutely amazing and something that I still find absolutely amazing is that while Saturn's rings are tens of thousands of kilometers across, they are literally only about 10 meters thick. Why are they so thin relative to their horizontal extent? Try to figure out the answer and send it in to puzzler at sjrdesign.net. I will discuss it during the next episode. 
And that episode will be about the fake story of Planet X, Part 6, Andy Lloyd's Ideas. So if you have ideas for a puzzler topic on it, please do send them in. By way of announcements, there are two. First, more details on my talk this upcoming Friday, April 12th, at the Colorado School of Mines. It will be at 5 o'clock in Berthoud, at least that's how I pronounce it. I've been told it's actually Berthod or something like that. Room 241. The last time I practiced this talk, yesterday, it was 1 hour, 1 minute, 35 seconds, so I should be able to hit the time limit of 1 hour. For those who can't make it, go ahead and listen to episode 7 of the podcast, which should give you a good idea of what I'll be talking about. For the second announcement, I'm going to pull a George Norrie. No, I'm not going to ask for 2,500 of you to join my Facebook page in the next month, as I don't think there are 2,500 listeners total yet. But, as of the time that I'm recording this, I'm two people away from 200. Can two of you, who are on Facebook but have not yet liked the page for the podcast, please click that little button to make me feel good by next episode. That wraps up this topic for the 70th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, send an email to podcast.sjrdesign.net, leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, or leave a comment on the blog post for this episode, or leave a comment on the Facebook page of the podcast, or send me a tweet, at PseudoAstro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback, and if you have suggestions for topics, please do feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, also tell friends, family, enemies, frenemies, and several dozen other random people that you might never meet in real life.